friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory, and we are so lucky to have our first returning guest. Uh, Bashir Mohammed is a writer, researcher, historian, now playwright, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Add playwright to the CV. Yeah, yeah uh, just, just one play. Just one play, but still, playwright. You can put it on the LinkedIn profile now. And... Um, Bashir is an expert at digging up these kind of incredible nuggets of black history kind of here in Alberta and, um, you know, things that we just wouldn't be talking about, wouldn't be discussing, wouldn't have become part of the discourse if Bashir wasn't doing the work that he was doing. And we're so grateful to have him on. Bashir, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. So I think the like very first place we have to start off is the extremely obvious one, right? And that is Justin Trudeau's blackface. Yeah. The reaction to Justin Trudeau's blackface, especially from kind of comfortable white liberal types, is to say that, like, this isn't Canada. Yeah. This isn't us. And that type of reaction is just kind of hilariously wrongheaded, right? It's, it's funny because, like, the... So, so I guess the best way to explain this is the guy who who wrote the melody for O Canada uh, was, a, was a minstrel performer who performed in blackface. So minstrel shows are as old as O Canada, uh, they're recorded uh, as coming into Canada as early as 1841, and blackface has continued. Like, just a few weeks ago, the St. Albert Fire Chief was in blackface. And like, this is Canada. <clears throat> or he was in blackface in 2017. Yeah, yeah a couple of years ago, he yeah. was in blackface, and it just came out after the Justin yeah. thing. But, but, like, this is Canada, right? Yeah. You know, we've built a, a violent settler colonial state kind of on the back of racism. And that's one of the kind of subjects that we're going to be exploring today. But, but specifically the subject of blackface... I think is one that's worth digging into. And, you know, we've got at least three in- incidences of, you know, our idiot fail son prime minister putting on blackface. Yeah. And it, it spurred the conversation on this, right? And and before we even get to the further kind of details and exploration of this, it's worth just saying out loud that dressing up in blackface or brownface is an intentionally dehumanizing act done by white people to belittle black and brown people. And that... It's racist. It's wrong. Don't do it. If you know anyone who is thinking of even ironically doing a Justin Trudeau in blackface costume, <laughs> just smack the fucking shoe polish out of their hand and just just don't do it. The amazing thing about it was he kept saying that he was just over enthusiastic about costumes. But if you look at like uh, the high def video that came out, he even like blackened his knees. So that that takes some commitment. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, Justin Trudeau's commitment to blackface is. Um, I mean, something that I wish he held for, like, giving Indigenous people, like, clean drinking water or something, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, yeah. like, this is a real passion project for him. Yeah, and I, and I think something uh, to note, too, is, like, just how he kind of reacted afterwards. Like, he had a press conference where he said all the right things and everything, and I'm saying that sarcastically. And uh, then what I found interesting was how Jugmeet kind of played into this as, like, the only, like, racialized, you know, person running for prime minister it was it was interesting how he basically had to accept like trudeau's apology and like had to not appear frustrated or angry or anything and i thought that was for me it wasn't so much like the blackface but i think also how he reacted that made me more disappointed and all that and so do you think canadians give a shit like do you think this is going to matter in the end when it comes to this election like when it comes to like you know white canadians and everything i i don't think they see it as like that big of a thing like already we moved on to like multiple news cycles and i think there was a poll that came out uh recently that showed that uh attention or like outreach on this really waned in like the weeks after 
Yeah, I think I think Jagmeet Singh is already on his like third like racist indignity yeah. <laughs> since since this blackface thing is broke, right? Yeah, yeah, it's wild. The whole like Jagmeet Singh thing is is interesting to see because he's kind of put in this awkward position where he can't really react any other way. Like the person who told him to like look more Canadian, like who leaned in and whispered in his ear, he couldn't do anything else because anything else would make him uh, unlike a prime minister. While Trudeau can literally not tell anyone about blackface from, from multiple elections and then be fine after a week or two. Yeah. It speaks to a huge like double standard. Exactly, right? And I think it's also worth examining the media and how both how they covered it as yeah. well as their even their ability to cover it, right? Like yeah. the, the, the picture that went out kind of when the campaign started of the liberal campaign plane and it was yeah. almost uniformly white faces yeah. as for journalists on that plane, right? Yeah, and it really spoke to a lot of the questions that were asked. Like, uh, like I remember when the story broke, I was watching uh, the live press conference and a lot, a lot of the questions like were based around like politics, like, uh, do you think voters will care about this? Do you think, you know, this will hurt your electoral chances? Um, and it wasn't so much about, like, what actually happened if he understands why blackface is racist, uh, what this says about his record on, like, racial justice, for example. What the media didn't do and what, what Canada, the conversation that Canada didn't have after this was, like, what the fuck is blackface? Like, where does it come from? Like, why is it bad? Like, what can you tell us about its origins? Like, where does blackface come from? And, and like, how did it end up in Canada? Because it didn't start here. The blackface was popularized in minstrel shows. So minstrel shows were uh, white actors uh, who basically painted their faces black. And their goal was to mock black people. Uh, so there'd be, like, musicals. There'd be, like, theater shows, for example. I mentioned... Uh, oh, and they're very popular. So, like, uh, in Canada... The guy who wrote the melody, he was a mystery performer in Edmonton, James Ramsey. Uh, if you don't know, it's the it's the new Enbridge building. There's the James Ramsey building. James Ramsey also performed in blackface. Mayor William Henry, mayor of Edmonton from 1940 to 1917, performed in blackface. And, and to speak about kind of the legacy, uh, we all know about the Jim Crow laws. That term actually comes from a mystery show called Jump Jim Crow, which was about a physically disabled black slave, and it was about mocking, uh, mocking that person. So... This is huge in our legacy, not only in America, but also in Canada. From what I understand, these these minstrel shows were started in like Boston, New York, yeah. Philadelphia, in the, in the kind of northeast of the United States. Yeah. And it was essentially, it was like the movies. It was like going to a yeah. rock and roll show. It was it was, it was the, the, the thing you did at the time as a white person. Yeah, and, and the interesting is like now, you know, everyone's like, everyone knows minstrel shows are bad and everything. But there's this like assumption that back then it was like morally okay. But like in, in 1841, like when, when the shows came to Toronto, the black community there opposed it. And, and I guess uh, to speak about like films like, uh, like, like Birth of a Nation, for example, when it came to Calgary, Black residents in Calgary also uh, also opposed it. So I, I think that's also something important to address. It was wrong then, and it's wrong now. And there's an excellent interview um, with Cheryl Thompson, who's a scholar, a scholar on blackface, essentially yeah. one of the only ones that exists in Canada, uh, on Canada Land, where she talks about blackface and its popularity in Canada and kind of where it comes from. Let's yeah. listen to that clip. What does that have to do with us? So think about all the American media that you consume today. You're not really processing what does Game of Thrones mean to me as a Canadian, right? You just know that this is an American show that you love a lot. The minstrel show at that time, it's the same idea. Like, they're just like, these are American imports that are so entertaining. We love them. They're not processing that the mere fact that you love this means that in the context of Canada, you have the same racial framing of where black people should be placed in your society. Yeah. 
but did it serve the same purpose? We're always interested in whatever showbiz America is up to. That's where the yeah. that's where the glossy glitzy stuff comes from. That's where we'd rather watch that stuff. And, yeah. and the same was true back then. So Toronto was a place where touring companies would come. Yep. But did that mean something different to Canadians than it did to Americans? Because it was a different kind of anti-black racism in Canada and at a different scale. Did we understand it the same way? Well, the way I like to describe that is think about the railroad, right? And the sleeping car porters. So the sleeping car porters were black men who were cast with serving white passengers on the train overnight. The sleeping car was not just domiciled in America. It was in Canada, too. So that same archetype of the African-American or black male serving, wearing white gloves and smiling and being happy was across the country. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, is that in the psyche of the white Canadian is this same desire to see black people in positions of either service and or as comedic foils of some kind. You should do an episode on the... Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters in Canada. Like, they're unionizing efforts. I don't know if you know much about it. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's where the the very first uh, black lawyer in Alberta was the daughter of a sleeping car porter, right? Yeah, 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 and... uh, And they, like, organized and raised money for her to go to the University of Alberta. Yeah, she actually received an award. There's a photo of her with the union reps, too. What's her name again? Uh, Violet King. That's right. Her daughter's still kicking around, too, in the U.S. But to go back to the blackface thing, like, essentially, its, its existence in Canada was good old, you know, American cultural imperialism, as you said, and as you've already brought up, the Alberta has a long and extensive history of blackface and minstrel shows as well. Yeah. I mean, even beyond the the shit that we just talked about, right? Like the the St. Albert police chief or the or uh, it, fire chief, fire the St. Albert fire chief, yeah, yeah. or the um the uh, the teacher at some Christian school in oh, Sherwood sure, Park, Park yeah. last year. Um, you know, beyond your usual like Halloween idiot dresses and blackface, there is just like historical blackface within Alberta that is just like in our archives, like which is in the kind of stuff in the work that you do, right? Yeah. And it's interesting too, like uh, I have like a lot of like white people tell me, you know, growing up a relative wore blackface or maybe they wore blackface and they thought it was harmless. <clears throat> I think uh, I think a problem with a lot of these discussions is like people see blackface and then they automatically like assume that, you know, we want to like shame them and everything. Like I, I don't speak to, for every black person, but I know that like shame is like not a useful emotion to feel what actually needs to happen like what trudeau needed to do was show action through policy show action through like caring about racial justice issues that are still happening showing you understand this is a problem because guilt and shame won't really do much and and, but i still go back to the photos that you've dug up right and 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 like you know, we've had the, the former mayor of Edmonton a hundred years ago performing in blackface. Yeah. Not just not just dressing up in it, but actually like going on stage. Yeah, yeah, like a top hat, I think, in the photo. And the one that sticks out to me is is something you dug up from the Glenbow Archives. It's it's a picture from nineteen thirty-five. Yeah. It's from the Kiwanis Club in Edmonton. Oh yeah. It it's the one it's got five men, um, four of them who are in blackface, all looking directly at the camera, smiling. Yeah. They're all wearing white rim glasses, they've yeah. got comically large novelty bow ties on. Yeah. They're fully dressed in tuxedos and tails. They all seem to be kind of plump, middle-aged, yeah. comfortable, successful men. Yeah. This was this was a thing that like upper middle class and like upper class like white people did. Yeah, yeah, it was huge. And like, it's kind of funny. Like photos are that are really like creepy too. Like I don't know if you it reminded me of like a Halloween film, but yeah, it, like it was 
very popular amongst the upper class. Like James Ramsey was huge in Edmonton. I mentioned him before. <clears throat> he has a building with his name on it. There's actually a plaque, by the way, with like a bunch of history on James Ramsey, but nowhere there is this actually mentioned. And just as an aside, the Kiwanis Club uh, does give out an every an, an award every year called the Top Cop Award, but that's uh, that's neither that's neither here nor yeah. there. It wasn't just Kiwanis though. Yeah. Uh, Rotary liked to throw a minstrel show too, right? Yeah, and, and they have parades. And yeah, minstrel they'd have minstrel yeah. parades. There's the there's this headline that from something that you dug up. Here's the headline from this 1920s Edmonton news clipping rotary minstrel parade was big noonday attraction with real display of merriment. The sub the subhead read parade eclipsed all former efforts in burlesque grandeur and general foolishness. This was, this was fucking going to the movies. Yeah. And, and the whole point about general foolishness is interesting. Cause like, that's how they feud black people as like silly as like not serious as lower than them. I think there's no better way to end uh, this conversation on blackface with um, this Justin Trudeau clip. I've always, uh, and you'll know this, been uh, more enthusiastic uh, about costumes uh, than uh, is somehow uh, is sometimes appropriate. So Bashir, uh, you've been doing some digging in the crates. This is, you yeah. know, the thing that you're good at. You're an expert at this. Going through, well, I'm, the, I'm a random person. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you you dig up more kind of random racist Alberta history than anyone else. And the thing that you've dug up recently that you were talking about on Twitter, one of the reasons why I reached out to you originally was that there was, you dug up a race riot that happened in Calgary in 1940. Yeah, it was really interesting because I actually originally came across it through a article Cheryl Fogel wrote. And uh, she had like a paragraph on it and she was talking about how a race riot involving between 200 to 300 uh, soldiers uh, like went through Harlem uh, in Calgary and, and attacked the musician's home. Yeah, so I wanted to dig deeper and like actually see news clips and see see how this was talked about. And uh, basically it involved a black musician named Lou Darby and he owned a dance hall. For context, this is 1940 Calgary, uh, it's World War II and there's a bunch of soldiers in barracks. And on the Saturday night, one of the soldiers went to the dance hall and the person he was with was apparently paying too much attention to a black musician. A, fight. a white woman was paying too yeah. much attention to a black musician. That's yeah. what was going on. Yeah. And, uh, and a fight breaks out. The next day, a soldier, I'm not clear if it was the same soldier, uh, walks into a restaurant where a bunch of soldiers are gathered and basically incites them. And he says he wants to raid N-word joints. And uh, they go, they like march through Harlem Town. <clears throat> they enter a cafe. The police show up. And the police were like, no, don't do that. So they march to Lou Darby's house where they break the fence, they break, uh, they break the windows, and they knock down the door, and inside they find a white soldier. That white soldier married Lou Darby's sister. They found that unacceptable. So they, like, stripped off his uniform, uh, were, like, beating him, and the cops finally showed up and rescued that soldier. Lou Darby was actually in the house, and uh, he was quoted as saying that he had a butcher knife, and he was ready to use it. And as he was being escorted out by the police, the soldier shouted, get him. And a scuffle broke out, and uh, the, the police ended up, you know, uh, taking him away. So, so while they were beating the shit out of this this uh, this white guy who had married Lou Darby's sister, yeah. Lou Darby was hiding in a closet with a knife. Yeah, yeah, he was ready to use it. Uh, it was it was really intense, like uh, from the way it's, it's, it's described. Uh, and the other thing too is like the soldiers like were pretty intense. Like one of them threw a rock at one of the cops. Uh, what ended up happening was they they rallied together. And they, and they wanted to march back through uh, and destroy more black stores. But uh, their commanding officer intercepted them, gathered them, marched them to the barracks, and they were eventually dismissed. 
And what happened was the next day there, there was a, the army launched uh, an investigation. They arrested, I think, one soldier. Um, but I can't actually find what the result of that investigation was. But the end of the story is that most of the soldiers ended up getting off. And so this is 200 to 300 white men going into the like one black neighborhood in Calgary with the intent and purpose of, yeah. of beating up and, and maybe killing this black person as well as going and messing with the like black owned stores. Right. Like this is, this is a race riot. There's no way to like call this anything but yeah. a race riot. Yeah. The, the army later tried to like backpedal and, and they like said, no, it wasn't a riot, but like by all definitions, if you're breaking windows and all that, you know, I'm pretty sure that's a riot. Uh, so the other thing too, uh, so they marched through uh, a Calgary neighborhood uh, called Harlem, and that's where a large number of the black residents lived. And uh, so they initially marched through it. Uh, they they got to Lou Darby's house, and then their plan was to terrorize it even more. So this was also specifically targeted. It wasn't only Lou Darby. It wasn't only the white soldier. Yeah. And it's a part of our history. And, of our, yeah, we need the heritage minute on this. Yeah, and, and it's, it's wild that, like, not many people knew this. I actually did, like, a Twitter poll before, and I think, like, only, like, 2 or 3% of people actually heard about it. Four percent heard about it. There you go. And so, and so, what's next for you on this story? Are you still going to try and dig into military records? Are you going to be looking for other secondary sources or even primary sources? If anyone's still alive or related to Lou Darby or who uh, knows what, right? Yeah, yeah. My, my my goal is to see what the army actually wrote on this. And and I know, like in previous riots, they have wrote in reports. It's actually World War One. So, so this is more of a fun fact. World War One. There was also another riot, but this, this was started by like this really eccentric soldier who ended up like going to Taiwan and becoming a Taiwanese general. Anyways, but, but, that, but, that, but that's another that's Alberta fair. history. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you scratch your fingernail a little bit on Canadian history, and it's not hard to find yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, here. I, I, I have a conspiracy theory that, like, um, people intentionally made our social studies curriculum boring so that, like, you know, this stuff wouldn't come up and that we wouldn't understand the legacies of... Uh, these race riots like, and it feeds into this canadian yeah. image of like niceness and that yeah. you know we're the united states but without all of the like you know slavery yeah. and all the bad stuff yeah right and it's it's like you know there's lots of bad stuff here yeah <laughs> this is again a, a violent settler colonial state yeah. We've on the created on the foundation of just like stealing land from indigenous people yeah um like there's just there's no way to kind of get around that yeah. and sugarcoat it right so in the in the in the same vein uh, as you, Bashir, I've been digging digging in the crates and going through some some history when it comes to Alberta and Canada, um, specifically on a subject that we don't associate with Alberta, and that's uh, slavery. Mm. I'm, so, if we're all familiar with our kind of middle school history or social studies, we vaguely remember this dude named Prince Rupert, right? Yeah. Rupert's Land. Rupert's Land, right? The precursor to what would become BC, um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he, whenever he's kind of described in the media or in, or in these history books, he's kind of described as this rakish, you know, entrepreneur, military officer, you know, this founding father of Canada, right? And really the kind of modern conception of Canada exists because of Rupert. And the way that it exists because of Rupert is that he financed the original expedition to the Hudson's Bay. He financed two ships to come up, mm. sail all the way into Hudson's Bay Park, mm. and go out into the wilderness, find a bunch of furs, uh, beaver pelts in this case, from what I understand mm. for the most part, and then go back to the UK right. or England and sell those, sell those beaver pelts at a profit. 
And from the reports, the historical things we say, it costs 240 pounds mm-hmm. to go and finance these two ships and send them up uh, to what was, what was not Canada at the time, but what before kind of proto-Canada, Hudson's Bay. And came back to the UK and ended up making more than 1,400 pounds in profit, or 1,400 pounds total in sales on the furs that they brought back. Mm. A tidy, handsome profit, right? Based on that successful expedition, Prince Rupert found a Hudson's Bay company, and eventually the King of England gifted him the entire drainage basin of the Hudson's Bay and created the, the Hudson's Bay company. The thing that we don't talk about with regards to Prince Rupert is that before he was financing expeditions to Hudson's Bay to go pick up beaver pelts and what have you, he was making his living as a slaver in West Africa. He was a part of, he was a founding shareholder and director of the Royal Africa Company. And before that, the Company of Royal Adventurers trading into Africa was the precursor company. They specialized in gold, silver, and slaving. So essentially, the reason why Canada exists in its kind of modern mm. conception is because this European aristocrat who made his fortune in slaving financed a trip to what would become Canada with the fortune he made in slaving. We Canada wouldn't exist if it wasn't for slavery. Yeah, yeah. We also like built uh, slave ships like out on the East Coast too. I mean, did you know that like modern day Canada or Western Canada was essentially birthed by the like the transatlantic slave trade no i had no idea about prince rupert's like before uh when, when we were learning about canadian history we just kind of started with yeah you know rupert's land you know yeah, and it's like, all just kind of like yeah the prince yeah. rupert showed up and then rupert's yeah. land started and here we are yeah. uh yeah we don't really examine him as a historical figure i mean he is a, even in the context of the english civil wars he is this he is he looms mm-hmm. large in like all sorts of history and he like invented all sorts of shit he is this this figure who kind of looms in, in European history, but yes, we do not talk about his history and the fortune that he made in like human misery and like traditional chattel fucking slavery. Yeah. The thing about making a fortune in slavery Mm. back in that time is England was still in the slave trade at that time, obviously. Yeah. And the, a big chunk of the slaves that Prince Rupert would have been responsible for trading Mm. to the new world, or it would have ended up in, Caribbean sugar plantations. These are like Jamaica, Barbados, uh, Saint-Domingue, a place that would eventually become Haiti. And these are some of the most like brutal conditions when it comes to slavery. I mean, it's all bad. Don't get me wrong. Being a slave was bad in any context. But like the the stuff you read about the sugar plantation, it makes your fucking um, blood curdle. That is is the the backdrop and the, the, the way that Prince Rupert made his fortune. I think it's worth bringing up, but it's also this question of sugar. The slave trade essentially made sugar into the cheap international commodity that it became. Yeah. It was sugar. Uh, when sugar became cheap because of, because of slave labor, it ended up creating entire new industries, right? Like essentially created candy as a whole class of consumable product. Right. It's that kind of brutal history of sugar production enabled by the transatlantic slave trade that brings us oddly enough to 20th century Alberta. We can't grow sugar cane here, but we can grow sugar beets. Have you ever seen a sugar beet? No, I haven't. So picture the like, you know, the white thing, uh, the white beet like thing you can pick up out of the ground in Super Mario Brothers 2. Oh, yeah. That's like a sugar beet, essentially. Oh. Like a green top white. They're like white. Um, the more you know. Yeah, the more you know. And these <laughs> these things were grown on the prairies in southern Alberta, Saskatchewan, even Manitoba. 
And before we kind of figured out how to mechanize it and, um, you know, how to use machines and how to use chemicals to do this thing at, at a huge scale, it was the shittiest of the shit agricultural labor out on the prairies. It was the least favorite thing for people to do when it came to agricultural labor. Yeah. So what happens? You're a sugar beet farmer. It's the 1940s. You can't get anyone to work on your farm because mm. it's World War II. Most, most of the workforce is gone. Yeah. So you call in the government to procure workers who are obligated to work for you by the state. Yeah. So we're talking about Japanese internees, yeah. German POWs. Yeah. And you know, the Japanese uh, internment, like a lot of them had their stuff taken away too. Oh, so it was, they, that they was the entire with, reason yeah. for the project was to, yeah. was to steal their businesses and their homes and yeah. their, all, of, all yeah. of their like accumulated wealth. So they, they then forced them to work. Yeah, so you had essentially you had two yeah. choices. Right. Or you had, there was a few things that happened to the Japanese internees. They were there were a bunch of them were shipped to interior of BC. We're right. talking like the Kootenays, West Kootenays, um, places like uh, Grand Forks, Slocan Valley, um, that area, very remote part of BC. And they essentially just lived in like internment camps. That's where David Suzuki, oh, okay, um, like spent a few years as a as a child. Right. The other thing that you could do was that you could get shipped to southern Alberta and you could work in the sugar beet farms. <laughs> couldn't really leave uh you were paid uh, as a kind of as a sort you were kind of paid but you didn't really have the option of leaving and these people didn't actually have the option of leaving until 1949 so like four years after the war they had to stay four years after the war they were officially released and and a lot of them stayed because they didn't have anything to go back to right all of their their houses and their property and their businesses and everything that had been out on the west coast for them had been appropriated by white people. Hmm. So there is actually this uh, fascinating history of like of Japanese people in Southern Alberta who stayed and who made lives for themselves. And um, Lethbridge has this beautiful Japanese garden. Lethbridge hmm. has great sushi. Um, and there is um, this, this like weird history of Japanese people in Southern Alberta yeah. that were literally brought there by force. Yeah. But after World War II ended, and, and after 1949 came around and those, uh, that, that all that cheap labor went away, sugar beet farmers were looking around and they were like, well, we still need people to do this shitty backbreaking yeah. labor that nobody wants to do. So they went to the government and the scheme they ended up cooking up with the government was essentially forcing indigenous people to work on these sugar beet farms mm. in the summer. Uh, a lot of what I'm going to say next comes from uh, some scholarship done by a man named Ron Lalibert. He used to be at the University of Saskatchewan. He wrote this document, um, a scholarly article that I'm going to be referring a lot to, called The Grabaho Indians, the Canadian State and the Procurement of Aboriginal Labor for the Southern Alberta Sugar Beet Industry. He wrote it in 2006. The various government agencies responsible for administering funds to these reserves would freeze their payments in the summertime. And they would say, well, we're, you're not going to get any money. There's work. Go work. And they'd bring up right. prices. They'd pretty much have to go work on the sugar beet fields. Here's the line from Ron Lalibert. Once their welfare payments were terminated, the Aboriginal people had basically no other options but to migrate to the sugar beet fields to seek employment as their chances of finding jobs near their homes were slim at best. And it wasn't just stopping the welfare payments to Indigenous people that forced them to work on these farms. There was also the real possibility that the state would take their children, kidnap their children. Yeah. Fucked up thing is that the state could take your children to, to take your children because you didn't go work on the fields. The state would also take your child if you <clears throat> brought them to work in the fields. Yeah. It really speaks to, I think, the Canadian project, like specifically targeting, like, you know, this group of people and like just giving them no option. Like the only... Like everything you're describing is like 
you know, genocide. It's like targeted violence, you know. And, and, and I think that's what shocks me. It shocks me that I never even learned about that, even though it's well documented from that. Yeah, like the, there's, there's no shortage of, of, of I mean, this Ron Lalibert has yeah. um, written extensively about this. Uh, there hasn't been really any reporting in Alberta, as far as I can see, on this issue right. of like indigenous people being forced to work on all, on sugar beet farms. But there has been reporting out of CBC Manitoba on this. Right. Two years ago, there was a story where they actually talked to a woman hmm. uh, named Rebecca Bone. She was 50 years old. She's, she's not that old. Yeah. And she was 13 when she worked on sugar beet farms. She can literally remember being forced, being forced labor on sugar beet farms when she was a teenager. Yeah. And some of the stories, the quotes from this story are amazing. Um, if they had a lot of children, Indian Affairs sent ch- local children's aid workers to apprehend them. Their get out of care free card, a trip to the sugar beet farms. When children's aid came after you, you had no choice, recalled Peter Paul Chartrand, who was 13 when they tried to apprehend him from his Camperville mm. home. The sugar beet farm is where I ran away ran away to. I had to. The irony was ugly. If children ended up on the sugar beet farms or were left behind, child welfare officials got involved. They would come in and take some of the kids when the parents were gone, or a lot of the kids were taken from the community and forced to go and work. And then when they worked, they just took them from there, said Lorne Bone, who was just seven when he first worked up on mm. the farms. Did all this blow up because of the child labor aspect or because of like... Yeah, so in 1969, we do get... It does come to the attention of the wider public through a report and a film done by the CBC. Right. And the cause was taken up by Alberta Federation of Labor and the Canadian Labor Congress and even uh, Grant Notley. But it was 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 two-pronged. It was the child labor angle and it was the housing conditions. Yeah. And the, and, the, and the work itself, right? Yeah. Here's from the CBC story as well. The reality was this. The work was grueling. Laborers, laborers worked 12 to 14 hours a day. No food or water was offered, and the pay was nearly non-existent. On average, a worker would go home with about $300 by the end of the summer. The accommodations were spartan. Sometimes there were none, meaning families would sleep in their trucks. Other times, farmers offered tents. Most often, the workers lived on the floor in empty grain bins. I remember the mice in the grain bin, grain bin, Rebecca Bone said. I was always afraid of them biting us. Again, this is the Rebecca Bone who was yeah. 50. She's 52 years old now. She's 50 when this story was written. Yeah, same age as like people's parents. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and this issue of, of child labor especially was the reason for the creation of an eventual independent committee. But this quote from uh, Harry Strom, the, the last social credit premier. Uh he yes. sounds like you have something you want to say about Harry Strom. Yeah, he's he was notoriously nervous. I remember uh, like he had to have everything planned for him, and uh, right before he was going to give a big speech, they handed him a speech, and, and all it said was all it said was "Go get him," and he freaked out. And then the staff gave him like the real speech. <laughs> Anyways, Harry Strom. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, but here's his quote on the child labor siding essentially with the sugar beet farmers at the time who were making the case that it was the, it was the family's fault that there was child labor was happening. He said, child labor in Alberta's sugar beet fields is the fault of the parents, not the government. (laughs) Fuck. Uh, The, the quote from Grant Notley is kind of uh, interesting too, um, just because of the kind of like modern day uh, parallels too. when the premier says the problem of child labor is the fault of the parents. This is Grant Notley speaking. He's sidestepping the responsibility of the provincial government in this issue. The premier is technically correct in stating that the workers are independent contractors and therefore unprotected from labor laws, but that still doesn't make the plight which results any more palatable. Hmm. Independent contractors, where have you heard that before? Sugar beet farmers just beat Uber to the punch by like 60 years. (laughs) 
sugar beet farmers were disrupting the <laughs> the labor market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the the, uh, the well, agricultural labor market. I mean, the thing that surprised me about this is just how much power they had. Like, how how can a sugar beet farmer have that much connection to the federal government to get like, um, you know, people in prison camps, but also you know, labor after those prison camps close? Like that speaks a lot of power. And I just want to close out with this with this kind of essentially the final paragraph from Ron Lalibert's uh, piece, which we will be putting in the show notes. While hoeing sugar beets was backbreaking stoop work performed under long, hot summer days, low paying, and the working conditions were extremely poor, Aboriginal people endured in the industry for over 50 years. Under such working conditions, it seems likely that one of the ways they coped was through their sense of humor, as some jokingly refer to themselves as the Grabaho Indians. And that's, again, in the title of the thing, and even in the title of the CBC. Yeah. Was it the title of the article? Yeah. Like the academic? Um, yeah, that's in the title of the academic article, yeah. too. And, and you'll link it in the... And in the CBC story, yeah. too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, I mean, what would you call this, right? Like, it's not slavery. traditional human chattel slavery, but it yeah. is... It's slavery. It's, uh, you know, it's like, you know, in prisons, like when, when prison workers do work, it's not, like, they don't really have much of a choice. Like, they're kind of pressured into it. Yes, they are forced. Yeah. It's forced labor. I mean, what's yeah. the difference between forced labor and slavery, right? Like yeah. a lot of the articles, a lot of the like media coverage that you do see of this yeah. sees it or, or tries to frame it as forced labor. Yeah. But again, what is forced labor? How is forced labor different from slavery? Yeah, for sure. And in a lot of ways, it's continuing the legacy of uh, like the makeup of like whoever was slaves back in that time, like black, uh, black people, um, uh, Aboriginal people, like they make up a huge amount of our prison population. Like the black incarceration rate has gone up like a ridiculous amount in the last 10 years, for example. I mean, what I'm curious about is who are the people and who are the families and businesses who benefited from this? Yeah. Are they still around? Probably. They probably still have a lot of their wealth. And who we were, should take it. I mean, and then this is where you <laughs> yeah. come in. Like, I mean, I, I would pay you a little bit of money to go out and write this story, but like, like what, what is CBC doing on this? What is the like wider world? Yeah. And who are the bureaucrats who put this into motion, right? I also want to hear the stories of the indigenous folks who were still alive. Like, this is yeah. living memory. This is the 70s, 80s. Yeah. You know, like, we talk about the 60s scoop or, or residential schools as if it's this long-ago history. The last residential school, I think, closed in 1996. This forced labor program, I think, was running until the 80s, until they eventually transitioned to, I think, bringing in um, workers from, like, Central America or Mexico. Yeah, child apprehensions are still happening. Like the youth incarceration rate for like that community in Saskatchewan, I think is over 90%. It's still going on. So like, that's, that's the thing that I've dug into. I mean, it's not that it's not, people don't know about it, but it is the, like, it's the discourse, right? It's not what we're talking about. And, and you have a remarkable ability to kind of drag these, (laughs) to drag these, uh, you're trying to downplay it, but you do to, to drag these, these kind of historical facts into, you know, the daylight of modern times and to actually talk about them and reckon with them, right? And Ellie, how do we reckon with this? Yeah, I think the main thing is like putting value into this research. Like I'm sure there's like, you know, uh, descendants of people who worked on those farms who would probably love to do this type of work. But I think it's not seen as like valuable or like relevant history to Canada. So I think investing in that is huge. So like paying researchers to, to do that type of work, but also sharing it in a way that makes it real for people too. Like, I'm just a random guy with a Twitter account. So when it comes to, like, some of the black history stuff I come across, all I really do is just, like, post it online and uh, and it gets traction. So it shows that people are interested in this. So in terms of what we can do, I think it's uh, just understanding that, you know, this 
I think a common theme in this episode is that this is Canada. I mean, if you want to do work on this story, if, some, if, if, if someone out there wants to work on this story, like Progress Alberta does want to transition into a media platform. And this is the type of work that we would yeah. like to do and we would like to fund and we would like to have people go out and, again, talk to yeah. those Indigenous people who were forced to go do this. Talk to the sugar beet farmers who did profit from this essential slave labor. Yeah. And, like, we just don't even have the frame of sugar beet as the, like, slave crop of the prairies, right? Like, that's just, we just, that's not in our vocabulary. It's not in our brain. It's not in our discourse. Yeah. But I don't think you can frame <clears throat> sugar beets as, like, anything but, right? Yeah. You know, as cotton was to the United States South. Yeah. And like, like a relatively, uh, like, innocent thing on first glance, but, yeah, a long, terrible history. Well, that's that's it for, I think, this this cheery episode of Canada's racist, secret racist past. Yeah. Smash that like button. Yeah, smash that like button. <laughs> hit subscribe. Um, Bashir, uh, how can people find you online? Uh, just Twitter, uh, at Bashir Muhammad. Yeah. And if people want to get a hold of you, you have a website or something too. Yeah, I, I also have a blog, uh, BashirMohammed.com, where I write about uh, uh, stuff like the race riot. Again, yes, smash that like button. If you do, if you did like this podcast, if you do want more of this type of content, um, please share it. I mean, um, you know, we we post our stories to theprogressreport.ca after every episode. Share that page with your friends, your family, people who you think need to know about it. Leaving a review is actually really helpful when it comes to uh, just the like algorithms and what have you. Yeah. And uh, even just like commenting uh, on the way that when it's posted on social, like any any type of interaction is actually good. Um, if you like this podcast and you want to support what we do, thank you. Uh, you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and contribute. We would really appreciate it. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear about, I'm on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at K at progressalberta.ca. Uh, thanks so much to Cosmic Famu Communist for the amazing theme. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>